Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 15 of the Trap Rock 101 podcast by Pirates and Poets. I'm your host, John Burns. Today's guest is Mark Friedman, who many of you know as the president of the Trap Rock Music Association. Uh, he is so much more than that, though, and we are going to get into all of that on this episode. It's a really fun interview, cover a lot of ground. But first, I want to remind you what the Trap Rock 101 podcast is all about. This is the podcast where we take deep dives into the backstory of various artists and other community members from the trap rock genre and community. Um, usually when somebody gets interviewed for a podcast, the, uh, the focus is on current events, their latest project, album, tour, something like that. We get into that a little bit at the end of every episode, but our main focus here is the backstory of each individual, the, uh, the story of how they got involved in the community, and uh, our goal is to uh, create a oral history of the genre and of the community uh, so that people in the future who are coming in to, the, uh, to the, our, our world can listen to this and, and understand where we came from and understand where our roots are. So uh, those roots uh, run deep with Mark Friedman. He has been involved in the community since the mid-90s when he started the Tallahassee Paraday Club. Uh, he has been involved with the music almost as long as he's been involved with Paraday Clubs. Uh, in the early 2000s, he put uh, he was the second person, I guess, to put uh, Jim Morris and Sonny Jim on stage together. He booked, promoted, and worked the Gulf Coast Highway Tour, which resulted in a live CD from Jim Morris and Sonny Jim. We talk about that. We talk about his work with Migration Music which was a project he had for five or six years in the early 2000s. It was both an online music store and a radio station. We talk about his uh, involvement with the Trap Rock Music Music Association uh, as a member of the Artist Review Board uh, under Tom and Michelle Becker, who were the founders of the TRMA. We talk about uh, TRMA 2.0, which uh, Mark is president of, been president of since 2018. We go really deep into that. Talk about how the award show happens, kind of some of the production behind the TRMA award show. And we also talk about uh, Mark's st- home territory, home stomping grounds of Tallahassee, Florida, and the Forgotten Coast region of the Florida Panhandle around Port St. Joe, Mexico Beach, and all in there. I hope you enjoy this. Uh, Mark, uh, in my opinion, Mark is, is uh, really one of the most valuable members of the Trop Rock uh, community. He's done a lot to keep the TRMA going and to, uh, you know, support the musicians. He is the driving force behind the uh, TRMA Artist Relief Fund. And uh, he, in my opinion, he just doesn't get enough credit for everything he has done for the genre and the community. So enjoy this, my conversation with Mark Friedman. Well, I grew up in uh, Tallahassee, Florida. And in high school, I listened to a lot of things like, you know, Bon Jovi and Van Halen and Rush and all those and then, but then my parents also had John Denver and a Jimmy Buffett album and things like that. So I listened to all that kind of music, but it was when I was a freshman in, um, at Florida State that I really uh, got into Buffett because I had had some music before, but not much. And I had the theater class. Everybody's got to take an elective at Florida State, and it was theater that a lot of people took. So you sit in the theater, and our professor stands up on stage, and anyway, so it's a it's the, the class you throw away. But what I got out of it is the professor was playing the new Florida album. So, um, so then 
I'm like, this sounds like Jimmy Buffett. This sounds like Jimmy Buffett. I didn't know a new album came out. And so then I went and got it. And, um, and then I was hooked and I went back and started listening to early stuff. And so that's kind of, kind of how I got into it in the beginning and um, became a bigger and bigger fan listening to all the old stuff. Then in 1995, I went to Key West for the first time with my cousin. I went into the Margaritaville store. Underneath the register was a poster of all the Paradise clubs around the country. There's one in Atlanta and there's one in Tampa. Well, those are both five hours almost or four and a half at least from Tallahassee. We're right in the middle. So I'm like, Tallahassee needs a Paradise club. So I started the Tallahassee Paradise club at the end of 95, beginning of 96. And so that's, that's really how I got into to all of this was being a Buffett fan, going to concerts and then saying, I'm going to start a, a club. So at what point? So we'll end you, in 1996, and we'll catch up the rest later. Yeah. <laughs> so at what point did you become aware of the, not necessarily the tribute bands, but the independent musicians that were inspired by Buffett, but not necessarily playing, it was, just playing covers? Right. It, it, was, it was about the time I started the Paradigm Club, uh, because then I was paying more attention to what other clubs were doing and what was going on, and and started realizing that there were some artists now granted only a handful. And it wasn't until 1998 when I went to the first meeting of the minds in Key West. And there I got to meet a lot more artists. I already knew, or or I know actually I met Sonny Jim there, uh, met Jim Morris there, met a whole bunch of others. And that's what really got me going um, into the independent was going to that first meeting of the minds. And, uh, a fun fact about you that a lot of people aren't aware, especially, I mean, I've been around a long time and I didn't know this until just last year or two is that you are, well, you're really two things historically that are pretty interesting. You're the guy who put Sunday Jim and Jim Morris together on the road together. On the road. Yeah. Clarification. And you also, yeah. And you also uh, had your own internet radio station for a while. So right. let's talk yep. about both those in whatever order you want. Well, well, we'll pick back up in 98 when I went to Meeting in the Minds. So after that, um, that was October. Uh, nope, it was the very beginning of November of uh, 98. And going into 99, um, I, I met James and saw him more, Sonny Jim. And then my wife and I got married in October of 99. And we had already booked me in the mind. So we were like, we're going to make that our honeymoon. So we did. Well, I had persuaded her to have a uh, Sunday Jim song as our first dance song. And, 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 and she was just getting to know his music. But it's More Than Years is, is the name of the song. We even had it engraved on the inside of our rings. And, um, and so we danced to that. So then we go to Key West together. She, for the first time, for going, we've gone to concerts, but she hadn't gone to, to that yet. And went to Sloppy Joe's, and James played it. We got a picture of us dancing with James in the background playing it. And um, then uh, he's just – since then, he's be- become such a great friend, and he's our daughter Ella's uh, godfather. And um, so she was born in 03, December of 03. Um, so then in 2000, early 2000, James was coming back to the United States and he was picking up a minivan in Houston, and he needed somewhere to go. And I said, well, just come stay with us in Apalachicola. And my wife's like, you invited this guy to come stay with us in Apalachicola for a week, and I don't even hardly know the guy? 
So we have a two bedroom, one bath, little cottage is all we had then. And I'm like, yeah, 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 it'll be fine. It'll be fine. So, you know, look where we are now. Um, but anyway, so um, that was April, May, and I went to some shows. I got him booked in St. George Island to play, and then I went to a couple of shows, drove with them and stuff like that. And then, and then um, that is right when I was starting Migration Music. It was April of 2020 is when I came up with that idea. My wife's bugging me. She's staring at me. I'm just talking to John Burns. He's recording this to go. Okay. Yeah. Hey. How are you, ma'am? <laughs> so I don't know how far you want me to go here, but that's a good stopping point because that's right. April of 2000 is when I started. And I keep saying 2020, I think, but 2000 is when I started uh, migration music. And were you the first internet station in, in the Trap Rock? It wasn't even called Trap Rock then, but were you the first one? I think Big Radio was before me, I think. Yeah. So I got going sometime shortly thereafter with Migration Music. So what I did was I was frustrated trying to get the CDs of all the different independent artists. I was trying to buy them, but you basically had to – most of them didn't have websites. And so I'm like, all right, there's got to be one place you can go and get all their, all their music. Well, there wasn't. And so I, so I started it and I had about 45 artists, maybe about 120 different CDs at the time. And I'd get them to send me five or 10 at a time and I'd, I'd pay them for them up front and then I'd resell them. And it was a way to get the music out. So, you know, you're not going to make a ton of money at that, but, but, you know, it was providing a good service for them and, and something fun to do. So then a year later at the beginning of 2001 is when I decided to start Migration Radio. Because I'm like, all right, we're selling the CDs. We need to be playing the music. I did it on Live 365. You know, that was during the time of Napster and everything else. And um, so I did it on Live 365 and uh, started Migration Radio. And I actually broadcast things live. I broadcast in April, uh, March or April of 2001. I may have been 2002. Um, yeah, it was 2002. I did a Jim Morris CD release party every January, he'd go to the studio, record a CD. He'd release it late March with have a thousand people come to the golf course to do this big concert. And he'd make all his money on a CD, right? Dang. He'd sell a thousand of them. Did that every year. So, um, so I actually ran a 500 foot telephone line from the clubhouse out across the putting green and all the way out to where uh, they were having the, the, the show and interviewed Jim and did all that. And this all on dial up. So, so I did that and we did the Gulf Coast Highway Tour. I, I broadcast some of those uh, when we did California and we did the West Coast. Um, I did Seattle and San Francisco. Uh, so, wow. That's, that's crazy. Broadcast and a show on dial up. Have you, have you told EB this story? I don't know. But, but back then, it was, you know, did I want to be run at 28 meds or 56 and I had to pay more if I wanted to go to 56 or 28 K. I can't remember whatever it is. I always get confused, but I mean, it was nothing. We're not, it's not meds. We're talking meds these days. This is right. 28 K back then. So, yeah. So I ran on actually lower than that because I wanted people who had even a worse dial up than me to be able to listen. So I ran at a lower quality. So more people could hopefully could listen if they didn't have very good dialogue. So. And how were you reaching people back then? I mean, through the Paradigm Clubs? Were you on Buffett News? I mean. 
Yeah, I mean, originally I was on, in the late 90s, I was on the listserv, um, uh, Buffett listserv, and and then from there I just, you know, email was starting to get going, but for the most part I'd call people. You know, I can tell you some stories about calling Greg Fingers Taylor trying to get CDs out of him and how crazy his was, life was back then with his young wife. But anyway, <laughs> um, so, so yeah, mostly calling him, and then they ship him to me, and I'd mail him a check. And, you know, so I would buy him up front. I don't want to deal with consignment stuff. Yeah. Wow. So I, I, I never knew about the CD store part of it. I knew about the radio station. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. So this, this, the, the, the store is what started it. Okay. Gotcha. And I had a link so then they could click on it and they could go to the store and buy the CD if they wanted. And my biggest sale, cause I didn't make any money of this hardly, you know how that goes, but yeah, biggest sale and it's a lot better these days than it was, was there's a guy from California that had a friend that loved the music. It wasn't trap rock band. And he bought every CD I had. It was like $1,600 or something. I gave him a discount. Um, but like $1,600, um, $1,500, $1,600, every single CD for his friend as a present for his birthday. <laughs> so like multiple copies of? No, no, no. Every single one I had an in inventory because I had like 120 or something. Maybe, what, I don't know, 100, 120 at the time maybe. Wow. No, I had to be 120 more because I did give him a discount. So I had to be over 120. Maybe it was 140. And... I had to ship one of every single one I had to his friend and he paid for it. So. I wonder, I can't remember this guy's name, but I've had similar, there's a guy, he's from the West coast and I cannot remember his name, but probably three times in the last 10 or 12 years, he's shown up at a Hannah's reef show where I've been working or a pirates and poets show. And he said, I'm going to come back at the end of the night. Don't pack up because I'm buying everything you have left. And mm-hmm. he's literally done it. And it's and the he same gives it away. He gives yeah. it to takes it back home and gives it away. Yeah. Awesome. So awesome. I wonder, I, I cannot remember the guy's name right now, but I, I'm wondering if it's the same person. So I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Yep. But so you had, you had a website, which back in those days, that was pretty, you know, yeah. People just yeah. didn't have websites. They maintained at their house, you know, on their home computer. I, I, I kept it going to about 2006. And I was just getting busier, busier with work. My daughter was born in December, of, you know, three, and um, so about 2006 is when I, you know, kind of said, "All right, I, I, you know, I don't have time right now for all this." So. <laughs> yeah. So you got out of it really right as social media and email marketing and all that was probably really taking off. So yep. your yep. life could have gotten a whole lot easier. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, marketing back there was difficult. One of my biggest ways of marketing was at Meeting in the Minds, everybody gets a goodie bag, right? Right. So I would get, my wife would help me a lot, get like an index card. And I would I would print, I think I got ones that tore apart. I would print the schedule for all the Meeting in the Minds, inside and outside, on the front and back of a little card like this that they could put on their lanyard. Mm-hmm. I had my logo on both sides. So no matter how it flipped over, my logo would be facing. And I fit all of it on that. And we laminate it, we hole punch, and we sent them and they put one in every single goodie bag. It was like 800 or 900, maybe 1,000 back then. Wow. And we did all those and hole punched them. And that was, that was a big way of advertising and, um, and the T-shirts and hats and all that good stuff. 
Yeah. Well, cool. So when did uh when did the whole Gulf Coast Highway Tour come together? That came together in two thousand and one. No, late two thousand. It came together a little bit before. It would have been August September of of two thousand because I um I knew James and I knew Jim and I James had come stay with us so I got to know him a lot better and I'm like these two guys would would really get along well. And they're both good acoustic guitar players, both good solo performers. And um, so Alex Leist was putting them on stage together at the Casa for the, for the first time. So it was originally his idea for the two to play together at Meeting of the Minds in 2000. But, you know, I thought it was such a good idea ahead of time. I talked them both into doing the Gulf Coast Highway Tour. I said, we'll do like nine days, we'll, ten days, we'll do like eight shows, and we'll go, we'll take – um, Jim's mother home and drive out to Houston because James was out there. They were living in South Texas at the time. Okay. And um, his dad's in Houston, so he spent the night there, drove the next morning over to San Antonio and started the tour in San Antonio. And then came back to the Houston area and and, and went along the coastline. Um, so so I got them to commit before they ever played together. Wow. And they did trusted me on it. They didn't even know each other, really. I mean, I, I don't even know they'd met. They probably had met at the prior meeting in their minds, but they didn't really know each other. And they said, yeah, let's do it. So, we're like, all right, we'll record it and we'll do a CD. And wow. we had that all planned out ahead of time before they even played together. Not Well, maybe not totally played together, but in the following months following, you know, we got it all together. Yeah. And, and when was that actual tour? Was that, what, spring of 2001? Hey, uh, May, I believe it was May of '01. Wow. Yeah, it was May, and uh, we ended up in Punta Gorda. We went, we played the Margaritaville in Orlando, uh, and Steve Huntington announced that's why you get him if you go back and you listen to the CD, which I've got maybe five or six left, but I've got some some signed covers, some signed uh, CDs as well with Jim and James. But um, um, I forgot where I was going with this. Anyway. Steve Huntington uh, and Margaritaville. Yeah, Margaritaville and Steve introduced us. And we, you know, so we, we recorded six shows. We did not record the first two. We didn't record San Antonio or Houston. And so Jim and James kind of get a good feel for things. And then the final six we recorded. And, and then what happened was uh, James took the recordings. He had a week stint at Margaritaville in Key West in June sometime. And he took the recordings and James mixed it all and put the whole CD together and he'd send Jim and I a demo of, you know, the songs and things and get some input. But he put it all together himself in his hotel room at the Holiday Inn in Key West. And that's where that whole CD was put together. And, um, and so then we got it sent off to disc makers. Um, and we drove to, we were in the middle of the Gulf Coast Highway Tour. Halfway, probably it was Biloxi. Because we had a blowout block, not a blowout tire blowout, but you know, good time Biloxi. Yeah. And um and and Go Sheds as well. We played both those places. Um so we decided in the middle, we've done the Gulf Coast, let's do the East Coast at the end of the summer. So before while we were traveling on the Gulf Coast tour, I was starting to book the East Coast for the end of for August. And so we got the C D done, Jim picked us up. James came to Tallahassee, I think, and Jim picked us up and we went to Atlanta. We drove, we had a show that night at Hemingway's. 
we, that afternoon, we got up there early enough, we drove to UPS, picked up the CDs, and went to Hemingway's and played and started selling them. So then we went all the way up to Boston and back down. Dang. That's, that's a lot of touring. Uh, well, during that, we're like, okay, we've done the Gulf Coast, we've done the East Coast. We got to do the West Coast. All right, we don't have any time this year left. So next summer, we're doing the West Coast. So the next summer, the three of us flew to Seattle, got a minivan, played there for the Paradise Club, and drove from Seattle all the way to L.A., ended it up at the Migration Music event, and um, and just had a great time, just the three of us in the minivan. Wow, that's crazy. I mean, so y'all were touring before touring was cool. Well, I think touring's been cool since, like, the early 70s. So. Probably, you're right. But, I mean, in, in our world, in the trial world. You're right. Yeah. Because when I got into things, you know, uh, 05, 06, people didn't really tour. They might do a weekend run. Right. But they didn't go, you know. You well, they would go to They do a lot of traveling in the summer. And this is like the way James still does it. Travels a lot in the summer. And then he's got his normal gigs in South Florida in the off-season, which is their on-season. Right. And that makes perfect sense. So. Well, that's that's pretty wild. So, you, when you recorded these shows, you recorded them. If James mixed it, y'all were recording individual tracks. Then, I think eight. James did it. I, I don't know. I was too busy selling merchandise and taking photos and things like that. Oh wow! See, I've already interviewed James, and we we touched on this briefly, but uh, that's that's crazy to me that far back that y'all were recording. I just assumed y'all recorded it straight, you know, headphone out of the headphone jack, and there was no mixing it afterwards. But no, 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 it wasn't. James would never have done that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. So that just, I mean, I guess at that point, um, it was just natural for you to follow with TRMA because you were you were on the ground floor of the original TRMA. I call it TRMA one point Yeah, well, or the Margarita Mafia back then. Margarita Mafia started about oh five. And 06 was about the time that I was kind of backing away some. And so I wasn't really involved with it back then. Um, And then about 2012 or so, Tom Becker contacted me and said, hey, do you want to be on the artist review committee? Um, Jerry Diaz was on it, some others, and and said, you know, do I want to to be on that to review the artists to see if they're admitted into the Trap Art Music Association Academy? which that was around the same time they changed the Trap Rock Music Association, I think. I don't remember the exact date, but they changed the name from Margarita Mafia. So, so I was on that for about four or five years. And then I started running the voting for the award show because Tom and Michelle wanted to try and pass it off. So they weren't the ones doing everything. Right. And two of them, and they're artists. So, you know, um, so, so I started doing the, the voting and all that and tabulating and putting all that together. And then fast forward to December of 2017, the very end of the year, right? You know, I, things were getting to the point where it was going to get shut down. Right. And I'm like, well, that can't happen. So... I got up with Jerry Diaz because he had been involved and Eric Babin because Eric was Gina and Gina were great. All of 2017, they ran membership and they really got a lot of activity, a lot of people interested. So I dealt with Eric all that year on stuff. I'm like, all right, we can do this. So I dealt with Eric and Jerry and 
we ended up taking over and, and hitting the reset button and totally redoing it in January of 2018. We, we announced it at Party Gras in January of 2018. I wasn't scheduled to go to Party Gras, and I told Jerry, I said, hey, you got room for me? You know, because I think this needs to be our kickoff. And so that's what we did. Yes, I remember that. And it was a... Uh... I mean, it was a, a complete, like you said, a complete reset, a complete redo from the way it had been ran uh, under Tom and Michelle. Um, Which they did a great job keeping it going. It took a lot of time to do it all those years. It's just they were tired and it needed, you know, some new blood. Yeah. I mean, they, I mean, in my personal opinion, their, their music career was hurt by all the time yeah. and effort they put into TRMA. Well, you see how quickly they came out with a new album as soon as they... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tom stayed on the board and he has stuff. So the award show obviously is, as probably everybody doesn't know that. Um, but, but he does help with that and he does stay on the board, but he's not involved in David. Right. And, uh, you put together, um, uh, the, the, the board under Tom and Michelle was what about maybe five people or so. I think the board, there was an artist review board, there, there uh, we five go. Of us, which included Tom, Tom and Michelle were just running the whole thing. There was, it wasn't as formal as it is now. There was no board of directors. Yeah. When incorporated, it wasn't a 501c6 nonprofit. It wasn't, you know, so, it, you know, being a CPA and a financial advisor, that's a lot of what I do. And I'm like, all right. And actually, I'd already put together three pages of info for Tom and Michelle back in the summer of 2017 of what I thought should or could be done to really grow the organization. So I actually had a three-page game plan already laid out. So when we ended up taking it over, I just pulled that out and got going on it. Yeah, and you put together this board that um, I think ended up being about 15 or 16 people right off the bat, and it was pretty diverse. I mean, obviously had a lot of artists on it, but you had uh, radio people on it. You had people like myself that are just kind of a jack-of-all-trades. You had some some you know straight-up fans on it. You really – House concert venue, right? Uh, events. So, so yeah. So the I, I had all these categories that I felt had to be on the board, had to be represented. And you know, so it was radio show, radio station, house concert, event, artist, fan. You know, finance, legal. So yeah. So it's it ended up being that first year we had a lot of really good conversations and it ended up being a great group to to get things going and and they all had really good strong and um good opinions so that helped a lot yeah it was i mean full disclosure i'm one of those 15 or 16 people that has been on the board since 2018 um and it was you know interesting and from my standpoint we had you know a couple of people that I consider some of my best friends like Jerry, Donnie Brewer, uh, Peggy Wright. And then we had people that, you know, I barely knew. And honestly, I think in the case of one person, I didn't even, I'd never even heard their name before. So you really went wide putting that together and it yeah, got us a lot of different Aaron. viewpoints. And that was probably Aaron Hogland. And I got Aaron because he reached out to me and he's in the equipment, musical equipment business and, and covers a big territory for a really good company. And, and um, he's very professional, and I'm, I, I, I've been dealing with him. I like him a lot, and I'm like, hey, do you have any interest in being on the board? And, and he ended up having to take another position and move up and grow and could, had to travel too much and get off. But, but yeah, so that's probably Aaron. So, I, you know, I tried to include people from the industry as well. Yeah, I mean, and I think that was interesting with Aaron, somebody who was a complete outsider, you know, 
uh, who had not hardly anybody in the genre. Yeah, and and he gave us some pretty good, honest feedback that that none of us could have ever given ourselves because we just you know had too much personally invested in it that he didn't he didn't have that you know uh, it wasn't part of his life you know so yeah. he could give us a more uh, bird's eye view really of stuff it was it was really interesting and uh, like you said Tom Becker has has he stayed on the board and he's also stayed really involved with the award show. But uh, the award show for years had been at the Casa Marina as basically as a time slot during the meeting of the mind schedule. And uh, early years, it was at Margaritaville. Right. And yeah. but but for a long time, you know, most of the 2010s, it had been at at yeah. uh, the Casa. And we kind of made the decision um, to to move outside the Casa, outside the meeting of the mind schedule. Um for lots of reasons, but I think the most important reason was that we wanted people to understand that we were a standalone organization separate, you know, from, cause sometimes I would hear from people saying so-and-so won five awards, but why aren't they on the big stage at the Casa? People didn't understand, you know, right. they saw, they saw Donnie Brewer win six awards on the Casa stage, but then didn't understand why he wasn't playing that stage. Um, right. So talk about some of that from your viewpoint as the president, you know? Yeah. I, you know, Usually, you know, I get ideas from a lot of fans, a lot of people, and people give me ideas all the time, which is great. Um, but going back to January of 2018, starting the organization over again and laying the groundwork, not just from a financial or a management or a legal um, aspect, which needed to be done, but we needed to be our own organization, our own identity, and, our, and build our membership even more. So we needed to build a really good foundation. So 2018, I felt was too soon to move it from the, from the Casa. Um, but I was looking ahead. So actually, when I was there in 2018, my wife and I went and met with Kelly Norman at the Key West Theater at the 2018 Meeting of the Minds and toured the facility. And after that, I'm like, okay, this is where we're doing it next year. Just hope the board approves. And um, so, so we did. And there were other circumstances, you know, surrounding that as to the schedule we was get, we were given. And we usually do Friday night for Meeting the Minds. They gave us Wednesday, and some artists wouldn't be there, and fans wouldn't be there. And so it was like, you know, we can't do that. Well, in 2018, I'd already, you know, booked, basically penciled in the Key West Theater. So so I was looking ahead, and fortunately, the, the you know, the board agreed. And we moved forward, and it ended up being a great show. We actually did two listening room shows, and there's a small room that seats 50, uh, Horizon Show, which we can't do that this year because of COVID. It's too tight of a room. But the Horizon Show um, with Danny Rosado and Erica Sunshine Lee, and then the Paul Overstreet Show, which Mac joined them and John Frenzy. And, um, so, and then the award show that night, it all turned out fabulous. So there were things that would have been even better, but some things did not go right. But the audience wouldn't know. Right. And uh, that was one of those nights when the first time 2019, when we did it at Key West theater that I, you know, I had 20 things I wanted to fix personally. Uh, you probably had just as many, if not more, but maybe only one or two of those were visible to the public. You know, I, I think we did a great job of keeping it out of the ditch that first year. Um, yeah. It, it could have gone that way. And, you know, and, and, but it, but it didn't. And, you know, kudos to you to, you know, to all the volunteers, to 
to Donnie and the band for helping put the show together as well. And Tom and, and, um, Rob Hill, Rob for writing, writing the script and doing the program and did an amazing job there. And our host, um, Tom and Brent hosting. So it just really all came together. Well, yeah, it was, uh, one of my prouder moments kind of as a stage managing, uh, person, it came off pretty well. And then this year is going to be, uh, we're recording this on a, it was right on time too. The show was right on time. It was it right on time. Three, went three hours and we kept everybody's attention for the full three hours with no intermission, no break. Mm-hmm. And everybody just had an amazing time that was pretty- this year, but I mean, we can do a good show, but it's just, we can only sell 140 tickets last year. I oversold, I sold like 300 and you're like 280. So, right over capacity last year so yeah and i should say that we're recording this on september 23rd you put tickets on sale uh today, today and they were gone in a couple hours yeah 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 uh, and like you said the uh the show uh this year we're only at half capacity because of covid for the award show um probably the in some ways the production is going to get scaled back a little bit in other ways it's probably going to get amped up um right. so Looking forward to having everybody try, there. And, and, and we want to try to broadcast it live, not just on Facebook, but on YouTube and try to make it a little bit better. And, and if, we can, if we can pull that off, that'd be great. We got to figure out how to, you know, how we're going to go about it because we're going to have a lot of, we're going to, of different components, video components to this show, hopefully, fingers crossed, that we didn't have last year. And um, there's a lot of artists that aren't going to be here. Right. And so we've got to find ways to, let them be a part of the show. You know, the detentions won't be here. So, you know, how can we get them to be part of the show? And there's a lot of other, James White's not going to be there. So, but there are a lot of people that are, but how can we involve some of these, especially the nominees that can't be there? How do we, how do we involve them in the show? And video is one of the better ways to do that. It's just technically a little more work. Yeah. Thankfully, um, we all, everybody in the whole world, but especially a lot of our musicians, know way much way more about live streaming than they did six months ago (laughs) so uh hopefully we'll be putting some of that expertise to use uh on uh, october 30th at the key west theater for the what is this the 13th annual annual 13th annual trop rock music awards so that's a lot of awards that's a lot of awards go go to troprock.org and you can go to the awards section and down the bottom we list the winners. There's one of the things I did that I definitely wanted on the website was all the winners going back to the beginning of the awards. And they're all on there. Go back to the beginning and look at how few awards and even artists there were to win the awards. And then how it's grown and grown and grown and grown and grown, especially the last five or six years. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to talk about was some of the newer awards that, um, that have been introduced in the last few years, especially uh, the video award, Rob Hill and I, had a conversation a couple of weeks ago about the video award, which he was a big, uh, a big advocate for creating that award. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a way to reach people, a, a well done professional video, not, you know, not just, not just you sitting in the corner on your couch playing a song, but a, a, a true professionally done music video it was a great way to reach, reach new people, um, new fans who are not aware of the genre. So I think that's been, and will turn out to be in the future, one of the best moves we've made. Well, and 
that was for last year's award, 2019 for the first time. And we, um, we made, I think it was five changes to, that, to the awards last year. One was video. The other was CD or album artwork. Yes. And so the idea between video and artwork was, let's try to get artists to raise the bar on themselves, okay? To want to do an even better job on the artwork. Want to go do videos. And if they're not doing them, or if they're already doing them, want to do them even better. Because so it was kind of like it was a push. Um, then we also, to be more inclusive, single and song of the year, historically, you had to be an Academy member. You had to have an album that qualifies for that year. Normally, we'd have about 20 of them. And that's still about the same now. But that's the only way you can get a single or song nominated. So what we did was we said, all right, any artist can enter a trap rock song for song and for single. And we broke out song and single as well. So they could be video, they could be song or single. And um, so that added, that tripled the number of songs and singles that we had on the ballot. Um, yeah. And, and we split both house concert and um, events into small and large. Yep. And radio stations too, which I, I think we're, we were split before on that, but yeah. yeah. And it makes it kind of tough figuring out who's going to be in what category each year. But, um, you know, especially this year when there weren't as many festivals and things like that, but you kind of just have to go with your gut and figure out, okay, what's the best way to go about this. And, and that's, that's fair to everybody involved. So that if anybody questions it, you can explain your reasoning as to how things were broken up and stuff like that. So, so far it's working out. Yeah, so uh, I want to move away from TRMA, but real quick, what what ballpark area are we sitting at on membership right now? I looked at it right before I got on with you because I knew you were going to ask, <laughs> and we're at 800, and last year we ended at about 850, so we're down just a little, um, you know, but with COVID and everything, that's expected. You don't have all those festivals, you don't, that helps build excitement and people want to be a part of something, and but so we're we're doing fine, and we always add some between now and the end of the year. You know, not that many, but some. So, right. So we're going to end up. Where I it to be. Yeah, we're going to end up being about even from from last year. Which you know, if you're if you're holding your own in 2020, you're doing something great and wonderful, yeah. in my opinion. Hey, y'all! This is Kitty Stedman from Drop Dead Dangerous. I want to thank you for listening to Trop Rock 101 podcast with Pirates and Poets. Pirates and Poets is a crucial platform for independent artists and writers, and they have been working tirelessly to make sure that we make it through this difficult time. Please show them your support as well by visiting piratesandpoets.net slash store or piratesandpoets.net slash donate. Cheers, y'all. Well, hey, I want to hear you talk a little bit about um, the area that you live in. It's... It's a very interesting area to me. Uh, you live in Tallahassee now, but you uh, you work down in uh, Appalachicola area. Um, you used to live down there. Um, it's a very interesting, I think, to most people in the world. Y'all y'all call it the Forgotten Coast. Yeah. And it's the truth because I think to a lot of us, the panhandle ends at Panama City Beach, and then mm-hmm. there's just there's nothing until you get back around to about Tampa. Um, yeah. But it's a it's a very interesting area to me. Uh, Mexico Beach and, and Port St. Joe. So just tell people about that, that part of Florida a little bit. Yeah, I, I grew up in Tallahassee. We moved here when I was four years old. So I was, we lived in Atlanta and we moved to New Orleans and uh, which my dad was from outside of New Orleans. 
And then he passed away when I was four. And my mom grew up just outside of Chattahoochee, outside of Tallahassee and Chattahoochee. So they met at Florida State is where my parents met. So we came back here when I was four for my mom to go back and get a master's degree, things like that. So I grew up in Tallahassee. And that was 1972, 73. 74, 75, I made my first trip to St. George Island with my mom and and my godmother. And um, so I started going there from from a very early age. Um, and then my godmother built a house in 81 on St. George Island. I had friends and family with houses on St. George, Mexico Beach, um, Dog Island. Um, so that was just, that's the area that I went. And back then, Apalachicola was, in the 80s, was just running the ground. Dilapidated buildings, old houses falling down, not many shops, a dog delay in the street for an hour and I get run over, you know, that kind of thing. That's kind of the way, that's the way it was then. And, um, but it's, it's, Franklin County is Apalachicola, St. George Island, Carabell. And then you go west and you've got Indian Pass, Cape San Blas, Port St. Joe, and then Mexico Beach. And that was where I went. That's where I grew up going. So when I was early 99, um, I'd already been buying some property down there, and I thought, you know what? I think I want to move down there. So I was able to find a job, and my wife now, she wasn't at the time, we moved down there, and um, and just then I ended up just opening an accounting practice a few months later, and and um, I'd already knew, known um, Michael Allen at Oyster Radio. Oyster Radio is in East Point. That's across the bridge from Appalachia, across the bridge from St. George, right where the river meets the bay there. And um, Oyster Radio started in the early 90s, and Michael Allen was the DJ. So in the late 90s, I would be providing Michael with trop rock music. I'd get CDs, and I'd take them to I'd still get them and take them to him. I'd go to festivals, and you see the, hey, can I get one of those to go Oyster Radio? And I'd take him to Michael. I mean, he's a client of mine, so it's been stuff too. But that, That's hilarious. I, I was emailing with him yesterday, sending him Dennis McCoggy's new album. Yeah, exactly. Literally yesterday, yeah. So, so Mike, Michael's a friend of mine. I see him all the time. I just pop in the station because it's around the corner from my office. And, and, um, and yeah, so Michael bought the station back 2013, 2012. And uh, so he owns it now. But, um, but, yeah, he was playing this music because they played a lot of Buffett back then. Back then, you would get two Buffett songs an hour. An hour. Wow. Like clockwork. And then that progressed to where we get more and more chop rock music. And I was cleaning out of storage and I had a big plastic tub full of all, I had, a, I had at least one copy and some multiple copies of every CD I ever sold on Migration Music. And this was about five years ago. So I've, I've kept them all these years. And I took, I, I, it was two tubs and I took them to Michael and he was a kid in a candy store. Because he had all this music he could listen to. Somebody already knew, but he had all this stuff. Man, he was putting so much stuff on the radio, all that old music that I gave him, all those. He listened to all of them. And that does so much for artists. Um, he still plays. Back when you know, when James and Sonny Jim and I went to Oyster Radio in 2000 um, and did some jingles and things like that, you know, they're still being played on Oyster Radio, the jingles he did in April of 2000. Wow. And then Jim Morrison, James, and I went in on the Gulf Coast Highways tour, and we recorded Montana Moon there in the studio, um, which didn't make the CD. I wanted it to. It was such a great song. Um, and then um, they were interviewed, and they played live, 
on Oyster Radio. And then James did a CD release party. I think it was an O2 Tropical Trader CD release party. We did at Harry's Bar on St. George Island. Oyster Radio broadcasted. And then after the broadcast, Michael told us that he got a call from the, from the shrimpers out on the, in the shrimp boat so they were dancing on the decks of James's music on Oyster Radio. So <laughs> it's just cool little things like that that are fun. Oh, and then one other thing. In 2000, when James came and stayed with us in Appalachia Cola and he played at the Blue Parrot, not the Blue Parrot, but um, Finney's Bar and Grill on St. George Island, um, the next day we had to go back and pick a checkup. The manager was a friend of mine, so we, the next day we picked a checkup as we were heading out of town. And so I just go upstairs. It was probably 10, 11. There were nobody there, but there was a waitress there. And I said, hey, I need to get a, a check for, for James. Well, I don't think I said. I said for the performer that last night. She's like, oh, little Jimmy Sunshine. And I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's him. And I went back down in the van, and I was laughing, and I gave James a check. And I said, yeah, the waitress, I said, she called you little Jimmy Sunshine. <laughs> and so the funny thing is, when we did the Gulf Coast Highway Tour the next year, I was generally driving the RV, and Jim and James were sitting back and laugh in the back laughing when they should have been practicing. And, um, and, and so I made the mistake of telling that story to Jim. And so from then on, James was little Jimmy Sunshine. And that's from the girl at the, at the restaurant. I wanted to get the check. So, wow. anyway, all these things that come to mind as I'm talking about it, I forget about. So. Yeah. And uh, two years ago, y'all got uh, walloped pretty good by Hurricane Michael. How's the recovery yeah. coming? Well, you know, in Tallahassee, we were okay. Um, here we have lots of trees, lots and lots and lots of pine trees and oak trees and all that. I and mean, we're, we're basically just 10 miles from Georgia. Um, but obviously, Mexico Beach, everybody knows about Mexico Beach. Yeah. And just east of there, Port St. Joe got hit hard, Apalachicola. Um, we got really lucky in Tallahassee in that our house the day after the storm that night, the storm hit on Wednesday on Thursday night, we got power all of a sudden and the next street over didn't have it for another five days. So we're like, all right, we got power. What do we do? So we rented a U-Haul, went and bought supplies to take that blood cola. Our, all our friends down there that own restaurants were cooking for everybody, giving them free food. And so I spent the next two and a half weeks. This hit right, it hit October 10th. So it was right before meeting the mines. So I spent the next two and a half weeks running around from here to Panama City Beach and trying to help clients and friends and and, and raised money and, and bought supplies and took it over to, to Jeff and Panama City Beach for the Paradise Club there and took it and then he divvied things up. And so I just made multiple trips trying to help. But things are, things are coming back around, you know, but it's going to take years. Panama City got hit really hard on the back side of the storm that a lot of people don't realize. Panama City, not Panama City Beach, but Panama City got hit real hard. And then all the way up, there's a swap all the way up into Georgia. And, um, where things are just destroyed. So a lot of people, timber, a lot of people don't think about timber. There are people that lost their whole retirement because it was in timber because at 10 feet up, all the trees are like this, just snap, boom, everything. So it's not just, so there's a lot of things and people lost their lives too, obviously. But um, They said $1.3 billion in timber loss just in Florida. In timber loss. Wow. That's insane. Because yeah, you don't you don't think about. Yeah, I grew up in Arkansas, and timber in South Arkansas was a big, big deal. But I never thought about that, you know, from a hurricane. Yeah. So, so it's coming back around. A lot of truck rock people know it because um, 
Don Middlebrook was pushing it because he'd written the song about Mango Marley's. And then after the storm, Mango Marley's was, was working out of a, a trailer. And I don't know if they finished rebuilding or not. I think they're still working out of a trailer and now then they, they got a tent. Um, but when I, I went to Mexico beach, first time I could get in was God, probably eight weeks after the storm or something like that. Oh, wow. Marley's was running. And then there was a big tent next to where the lookout lounge, which was the main bar there, the old, old, old decades, decades, decades old bar. They had a big tent. So you had the bar and you had Mega Marley's and then the church would run out of that big tent where the bar was on Sunday morning. And that's about all there was in Mexico beach. So it was, um, yeah, it was just level. So yeah, Mexico beach, uh, Jerry and Mark and I did a show there. I guess it was 2009, maybe 2010. Um, and the place just captured my imagination after that, you know, because yeah. um, like I said, it was it was past Panama City and um, it was very it's a very small town. It's it's, oh, yeah. you know, not like Panama City or Pensacola or any of those. So they're, oh, it's a small coastal beach town where everything behind it is woods. It's like the one you would see in France or or. Um, you know, we just got this little town, and then outside of that, there's nothing, and so you just drive, and then all of a sudden, bam, you're there on the town on the coast. Yeah, that's one of the interesting things about the panhandle in general, but it seems the closer, you, the further east you go, the more it seems like that. You know, in Texas, you get down the last 10 to 20 miles for the water, we don't have trees. You know, it's, there's nothing there. But over there in, in the panhandle, man, y'all have, like, woods right up to the beach. So... Yeah, Tindo Air Force Base all around there, which is between Mexico Beach and, and Panama City. Tindo Air Force Base actually got the eye of Hurricane Michael, and then Panama City was just that right quadrant that's the worst for storm surge and everything. Right. But Franklin County, which is where Apalachicola, St. George Island, Caribou are, we have 11,000 residents in Franklin County. And the county has 64 miles of coastline. And 80%, 85% of the land in Franklin County is owned by state and federal force. So there's just, just along the coastline is all you have for the most part. And there's yeah. 11, 64 miles of coastline. Wow. And you know, the other very interesting part about that little area, the Forgotten Coast, is that it's divided by the time zone. Mexico Beach is Easter, or central time zone, and then a lot of the other places are, are Eastern, right? Yep. Well, two two good stories. One is why is it called the Forgotten Coast? Which consider I was president of the Chamber of Commerce a few different years. I started the Tourist Development Council and all that stuff down there, hospital board. So I've been very very involved over the years. And so Mexico or, or the Forgotten Coast is considered basically Mexico Beach to St. Mark's Wildlife Refuge east of us. And the reason it's called Forgotten is a friend of mine named Chuck Spicer, who's passed away now, had a paper that he that he did a weekly paper, or monthly paper, I'm sorry, and it was tourist-based and that kind of thing. Well, he named it the Forgotten Coast because when you look at a map, on you don't buy the atlases anymore or anything like that, but when you look at it, you'd have the peninsula, and then they would break out the panhandle, kind of like they do with Hawaii and Alaska and stuff, right? Right. Because of the state, so they break out the panhandle. Well, they cut it at Apalachicola, right in that area, and we'd get cut out. We wouldn't be on the east end of the panhandle picture. We wouldn't be on the west end of the <laughs> peninsula. 
So we just got cut out. So we're the Forgotten Coast. And so that's how that name came. Wow. I, kn- I didn't know that. Yep. So we were forgotten. So the time zone change is interesting as well, because historically it was the Apalachicola River. So Apalachicola sits on the, on the western point of the Apalachicola River where it is in Apalachicola Bay. On the other side is East Point. So Apalachicola used to be called, it, the, they call the name of it is, is the people on the other side, or some people say it used to be called West Point, because from East Point, the people on the other side is Apalachicola, it's an old Indian name. And you have St. George Island, Caribbean and stuff. So, so East Point would have been an Eastern time zone, Apalachicola would have been Central time zone. And that's a, that's a five mile bridge peninsula or, um, be, between. So um, what happened was, the owner or the CEO of St. Joe Paper Company, which is where Port St. Joe is named after, and St. Joe Company now that does developments. Um, matter of fact, the, the Latitudes Margaritaville one being done over in Panama City Beach is actually in River Camp, which is a St. Joe development. Okay. And so St. Joe started with a paper mill in Port St. Joe. And then they had corporate offices in Jacksonville as they expanded. Well, the CEO... Um, Edward Ball, he did not want to have Jacksonville and Port St. Joe on a different time zone because that's where he did all his work was between Port St. Joe and Jacksonville. So he convinced the legislature, okay, let's just take the time zone down that Bloodsville River and looking at your way, jog it this way, but we didn't mind jogging that way, but just jog it over around Port St. Joe so that <laughs> I'll be on the same time zone. And they did it for him. Wow. And so you, the time zone change is when you get into Mexico Beach. You've got Port St. Joe, St. Joe Beach. And then right where you get into Mexico Beach, Mexico Beach is the beginning of the central time zone. Yeah. So. But it's, yeah, the power and influence back then of that one man and being able to do something like that, you can never do today. No. Well, that's interesting. It's, it's just an interesting area. I look forward to getting back over there, and, and hopefully it'll, uh, you know, in Texas, we know a little bit about rebuilding from hurricanes, so we know it takes time. So hopefully hopefully in the next year or two, it'll be getting back to as close to normal as you can ever get after one of those one of those things, because you never go back to the way it was before, totally. You don't. You don't. Um, no. Well, uh, we always end these with uh, some rapid-fire questions, so are you ready? I am. You know me, I had to be prepared. Oh, so you did homework? I did some homework. Oh. I can't be not prepared. You're the, first, you're the first person to do homework. so. But it's still very difficult. Okay. Even doing homework. I'm I still thought, wishing on, I, on all. Well, most of them. I thought about coming up with some new questions, but I didn't. I went back and I listened to every single other podcast, at least the final questions, if nothing else. Interesting. Because I so, wanted to see what other people thought. It's not. It's not swaying my opinion. I just want to see what they thought. Yeah, I should. Uh, I should go back and see if my my podcast number spiked in the Florida Panhandle. So, <laughs> uh, here. what is your uh, what is your favorite Buffett song? All right. So there's a few, um, and you'll kind of get get the jive for some of this. Um, Ten cup chalice, because. It reminds me about Apalachicola. It's about Key West, but listen to Kent, Ten Cup Chalice and the shrimp boats on the docks and Apalachicola and oysters and give me oysters and beer for every day of the year and I'll be fine and and things like that. So it really, Ten Cup Chalice is perfect for Apalachicola. And the other one is Florida Days. 
And that goes back to the Four Days album and growing up in Florida. And he also sings about where the river meets the bay. Um, and so that Four Days album really got me going and above it further. And matter of fact, my sailboat was named Four Days, uh, you know, so. so. All right. Just well, uh, usually I ask, what's your favorite cocktail? But I'll just ask you, what do you have in that glass that I see you drinking out of? Well, that's one of my two. Okay. So rosé wine is my favorite, just because it's nice and light. You can sip on it. And I'm not a cocktail person. I'm not into mixing drinks and stuff. But Crown and Coke Zero would be the cocktail. Woo. All right. Here's the tough one. One of the tough ones. Favorite song by an independent trap rock musician, and I'm going to give you this. Sonny Jim and Jim Morris are not eligible. You suck. <laughs> totally suck. All right, my two favorite were. <laughs> this is why you suck. Sandbar Serenade by Sonny Jim. Okay. And then, this was tough, but... I decided on Back in the Sunshine Again by Jim Morris. Okay. Those were my two favorites. So, now I would have to go with Del Suggs and Magic Chair. Yes. A lot of people don't know Del's the one that wrote that song. Yes, he was. And and you were the first person to say Magic Chair and... I cannot believe it's taken that long because that is a hell of a song. <laughs> it is. And only since I only have so much time here, not only because, um, oh. all right, give me just a second. I'll, I'll come, I'll come back to that. Well, I w- real quick. I want to talk about Dale Suggs for a minute because you can probably speak to him better than anybody other than maybe John Reno. So tell everybody who he is because he's from your part of the world. Yeah, Dell. Um, Dell's from Tallahassee, or, or at least went to school here and stuff. And um, I don't know how old he is right now. Maybe sixty or something like that. Um, probably a little bit older. But Dell was his website name is saltwatermusic.com. And that's what he's always been considered himself, is he plays saltwater music. And this is going back to like 1979, 1980. I first saw him probably about 1982 or so. And we have a thing called here called the Farmer's Mark or the um, Farmer's Days at the fairgrounds. And I remember walking down, he was playing by himself on a stage, and I stopped and listened to him. And I was probably 13, 12 or 13 or something. And I stopped and listened to him. And then I'd see him about town playing every once in a while, things like that, and, and I never really knew him. And so it wasn't until about eight years ago, the Gulf Coast Highway is Highway 98 that runs along the coast. Right. And they were starting this thing called the Big Ben Scenic Byway that would go from Tallahassee down along the coast and stuff like that. So I got on the board with, with Dell and a lot of other people, and then I really got to know him. And, but I'd always loved his music. He doesn't have that many albums, but I don't have that much music. But go listen to it. Um, it's It's – it's great. I mean, I could easily pick another Dell Suggs song for my second choice on, you know, favorite song, but I wouldn't, wouldn't do that. So, all right, Dell Suggs, people, go check it out. And for those of you who uh, might be fairly new to the community and the genre, go check out John Reno and check out that recording of Magic Chair because it, 
it kicks yeah. ass. <laughs> so there, and and so Dell travels kind of a circuit and and speaks at colleges and music's a part of it and does some education consulting stuff. So that's his job that he's been able to kind of bring music into into the speaking engagements and stuff that he does. Yep. All right. Favorite Buffett album. This will be no surprise based on everything I've said, but um, A1A and Four Days. I got to do two because A1As. I mean, Ten Cup Chalice. I named Migration Music after Migration. Four Days was, you know, one. It's it's if people haven't listened to Four Days in a long time, go back and listen to it. I mean, even things like I love things like even Riddles on the Sand, which Jimmy was going through more of a depression time then. I think with bringing up with his wife, but. Um, but even like Riddles in the Sand has some some great, great music somewhere over China. I used to have a sailboat. This one wasn't named Four Days. It's more recent than Four Days that I hadn't cared about for about five years. And I didn't have a CD player or anything in it, but I had a tape deck. And the number one tape that I wore out was I had Coconut Telegraph on one side and somewhere over China on the other. And we go out sailing and I play it and I flip it over. Sometimes I play it more than once. But go back and listen to some of that old stuff too. It's, that's why it's just tough to pick. But Four days and A1A would definitely be my team. So. All right. Favorite beach not in the Forgotten Coast? You suck again. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. Cocoa Beach was going to be one. I'm, again, I'm picking two. Uh, Cocoa Beach was going to – well, we'll, we'll stick with Cocoa Beach. Cocoa Beach and St. George Island are going to be my two. Cocoa Beach, we used to go there a lot. My daughter would go to surf camp, and my wife and I could hang out, and it was just different from the Gulf Coast. Now, there are a lot of great beaches out there in the Caribbean and everywhere else. Tons of them. But those are the ones where I feel more at home. And Mexico Beach would be one as well, but because I grew up going there in St. George. Yeah. But so we got to go to the beach, I guess. All right. I'll, I'll let you have two or three. That's, that's fine. <laughs> the old town of Cocoa Beach, not where Ron John Surf Shop is and stuff. You got to go right. to the old town Mexico Beach, or old town um, area there. Yeah. All right, what is a book that you have read and you think everyone else should go check out? Well, I'm, I haven't done a lot of reading lately, but, but I used to do more. So I would go back. If anybody's a Carl Hyacin fan, I became a fan in the 80s. So go back and read Tourist Season by Carl Hyacin. That's a good one. It is. And I kind of, I kind of forgot about Carl Haas in the general. I don't know how yeah, I did that. The second one, my second one would be Buffett's Where is Joe Merchant? So that's yeah. a good book. Yes, both good books. And uh, the big one, which may get you in trouble, <laughs> if you are going to create a Mount Rushmore of independent trap rock artists, what four people would be on it? And, yes, you can name James and Jim. Well, I'm going to. So... <laughs> um, you know, I, like I said, I went back and I listened. I was curious about some of these questions, but this was the main one I was curious about what other people were saying. And I fall in line for the most part with them. Um, in that I'm, I'm going old school. So I'm going Jerry Diaz, Jim Morris, Sonny Jim, James and Jim White. That's kind of in the order that they've gotten involved in this genre, at least here in the United States. James obviously was playing it back starting 89, 94. Um, right. But my fourth, so do they have to be artists? These four have to be artists. Then we add one more that's 
an offstage yeah, person. Yeah, the community one you're talking about. Okay, so, yeah, because you had that community, you asked some people. Yeah. All right, so I had one that wasn't going to be an artist, um, but, you know, I'm gonna, I'd go with Brent Burns for sure as the fourth one. No question about it. Okay. So who would your offstage person be then? Your community, radio, event, somebody along those lines. Okay, I can pick anybody but John Burns. That's right. So, right? That's right. Um, my initial answer was going to be, and it still is, uh, Scott Nickerson. Because Scott started the Atlanta Parrothead Club in 89. Scott's the one I called when I wanted to start the Dallas Parrothead Club in 95. And so, so Scott kind of brought together all this commonality between everybody that was out there and it, and it, and eventually uh, he doesn't take credit for all of it. He's, you know, he's a modest guy and I've known him for a long time, but you know, he, he brought it together and he got it going. And so what that did was that got the foundation going, that got the clubs going in the nineties as trap rock, which wasn't trap rock. Then it was beach and Island and Buffett type music. As that got going, the paradise clubs were there to support those artists. And I think without having those paradise clubs to support those artists, we would not have the genre where it is today. So I give Scott a bunch of credit for that. So since you made my fourth one on Mount Rushmore be an artist, I was going to put Steve Huntington on Mount Rushmore Ooh. because Steve was the first hire for Radio Margaritaville. He brought a lot of trap rock music to more of a, a national audience. Um, then, and, and that was like 97, 98, 99. He went to Grand Cayman and broadcast James's CD release party live on Radio Margaritaville. So, um, and he's still pushing artists today, just like JD is. So, you know, I I think Steve Huntington deserves. Now, Jimmy Buffett gave him the platform, right? But he took advantage of it, and he knew Steve because Steve is such a huge baseball fan. If you've ever talked to him, he knows everything about baseball. You cannot stump the guy. And he was a radio DJ, I guess, in Miami. And Jimmy knew him from that. And that's how he ended up getting hired. So. You know, I'm sitting here. I'm, I have my little notebook that I use for the podcast. I'm going to go back. I don't think Steve Huntington is on my big list. And I don't know how that's the case. But I, he is not on here, I don't think. Wake up, John. So I'm adding him to the big list. He needs to be. Yeah, because, you he know. Probably, he probably needs two hours. <laughs> I might. Uh, it's, when I did fruitcakes on the radio, um, I just sent it. I'm like, I'm not going to call Steve. I'm not going to, you know, and I just sent it into the normal channels. And one day Steve calls me and I said, hey, Steve, what's going on? He said, well, he said, I happen to be the person that picks the fruitcakes on the radio. <laughs> and you're about to be one of them. So anyway, so we set up a time for me to call and I called. He and I talked for like 30 minutes before we ever got around to recording anything. And um, so, yeah, have a lot of time for him because he's, he's a history book. Yeah. You know, I need to send this list to you because um, I, I need to send it to like you and James and Jerry all because this is not going to be a forever thing. My, my goal here is it's Trap Rock 101 to do 101 episodes and then it's over. So and, and, and you know, I, I think if I go to if I go to 101, that'll just about tap everybody out. So but it's great because it's kind of. You know, it, it'll be there forever. People can go back and then listen as they're driving. I like to listen to podcasts when I'm driving back and forth from Apalachicola sometimes, not all the time, depending on phone calls. But, you know, I try to listen to things. And it's, yeah. it's great to be able to do that. 
And um, definitely when I drive to Key West for Meeting of the Minds, I listen to a lot of podcasts and try to find new music by artists because you got time to kill. And yep. So this is great for people to, to be able to go back and, and listen and get everybody's perspective on things and learn. Yep. I've enjoyed it. You know, the, the inspiration for this came from uh, Donnie's Legends show he did in Key West last year with uh, Jerry and James and Brent and Kelly McGuire. Um, I was sitting there backstage listening to all those stories, and a lot of the stories those guys told that day, the other guys on stage hadn't heard. Yeah. So that's where when, when you know, Jerry would tell a story and Kelly McGuire would go, I didn't know that. And I was going, okay, this, there's got to be something more than just this, this one show that only 200 people are at, you know? So yeah, I'm glad you enjoy it. And uh, hopefully people enjoyed this. Uh, I, I think, you know, this is a good history lesson uh, considering that we're coming up on Trap Rock Awards and, and um, Trap Rock Strong Week as we're calling it this year and everything. So uh, a lot of good history here for people. So Mark, thank you much. And I will see you in about a month or so. Yeah. Um, right about that. Yeah. Yep. All right. Thanks. Appreciate it.